Acts chapter 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So the corrupt high priest known for his corruption and his cooperation with the Romans now lays out the case against Paul to the Roman governor known as Felix. Verse 2. And when they had summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. Verse 3. In every way and everywhere we accept this with gratitude. So he's kind of buttering him up, giving him the appropriate flattery. This skilled orator, Tertullus, he's going to prosecute the case against Paul. Now, the high priest is going to employ the most skilled and impressive person to accuse Paul to Felix. He gets a good first impression. Now, this guy's squared away. Verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg your kindness to hear us briefly. Okay, so here's the point, Felix. We're here, and let's get down to business. Verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So Paul didn't stir up the riots among the Jews. The Jews stirred up the riots against Paul. But only the Jews who would not delve into the scriptures and see for themselves if the things that Paul taught were true. These were the unbelieving Jews. The believing Jews, they received what Paul said. They believed, and they were excited. But the unbelieving Jews, because of envy in many cases we read, they stirred up all these riots because Paul was getting a bigger audience than they did. So his first point is a total distortion of the truth. But Paul, as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, that's a valid statement. Paul was a leader in the effort to spread the word, so that might apply the sect of the Nazarenes, referring to the followers of Jesus. Jesus was called the Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. It was uh, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because there wasn't a whole lot of respect for that place, so they called him the Nazarene. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, he's referring back into Acts 21-29. It says, For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him to the temple. But Paul didn't bring him to the temple. They just saw that he was with him. So they conjured up this lie, essentially saying that Paul's bringing Gentiles into the temple, which would be bad if he did. So the only real argument that he made was that Paul's a ringleader of the Nazarenes. Verse 8. There is no verse 7 in this version of the Bible. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So, recalling Paul's conversion and commission in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And Paul would be a spokesperson on behalf of the gospel to not only the Jews and the Gentiles, but also to the kings. And Felix, even though he wasn't technically a king, He was a man who exerted a lot of government power over the people. And now this corrupt ruler is about to get a taste of the gospel. Verse 9, The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. They're all supporting the allegations of Tertullus. There are written in the book of Psalms certain psalms that have the heading, Song of Ascents. There are differing opinions on what this means, but a common explanation for the title is that these were chanted as the Jews would go to Jerusalem ascending on the road up to the elevated city of Jerusalem because its altitude was high. And as they would walk up the road to Jerusalem, they would recite or chant a lot of these psalms. And I wonder if the accusers, undoubtedly familiar with these songs, because these are the religious elites, they would have these things memorized. I wonder if they would recount them, and specifically Psalm 120, as they returned to Jerusalem after their false allegations against Paul. 
So one of the Psalms of Ascent is Psalm 120. It says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrow with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I may sojourn in Meshach, that I may dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Just imagine the entourage chanting this as they're walking up the inclining path to Jerusalem. Now, they're not going to the feast, obviously, but I'm sure they would be reminded of it because I'm sure the Holy Spirit was knocking on their door. So in Proverbs chapter 6, there are seven things that God hates. And when you listen to this, think of how many of those seven were the accusers of Paul guilty of, because they knew the scriptures. So it says in verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Number one, haughty eyes. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Remember the 40 that took the vow? A heart that devises wicked plans feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Man, they've got almost every one of them. I don't see in the scriptures where they had haughty eyes, but everything else, there are six things that the Lord hates. Well, there's six of them right there, and seven that are abomination to him. So even though they may not have had haughty eyes, they sure had the rest of them. Proverbs 12, verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And, you know, Jeremiah had to deal with the same thing that Paul did. He had to deal with all these people, these religious elites that were just messed up. He says in Jeremiah 5, 26, For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. And that's the heart of these guys that were accusing Paul. They were like hunters, just waiting there, waiting to pounce on Paul. Verse 10. So now it's Paul's turn. Notice that Paul doesn't butter up the governor. It says in verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul said, Knowing that for many years you have judged over this nation, I cheerily give my defense. So, you know, Felix, look, you've been around for a while. I'm happy to tell you my side of the story. Verse 11, You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up and worshiped in Jerusalem. Verse 12, And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. There's the defense regarding starting the riots, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Verse 13, neither can they prove what they now bring against me. So Paul doesn't defend himself with excuses. He was faithful to God and he did what was right. So all he had to do is just lay out the truth. And he starts out, you can verify this, Felix, look into it. I'm not the one lying, they are. You'll see that they're lying and can't prove anything. Their allegations are empty, deceitful words. Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law written in the prophets. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So Paul says, I admit I'm part of the sect, as they call it. That's what I'm all about. But what I believe, it's all contained in the law and the prophets. This is what I believe, and this is what I stand for. Verse 16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So Paul's best weapon against his accusers is his clear conscience, brought about by a life of obedience to Jesus. He obeyed Jesus and didn't have to worry about the slanderous allegations, although he would get plenty of them, but his integrity spoke for itself, that he was an honest person. Couldn't argue against that. Couldn't say he was a liar. Couldn't say he was a thief. Couldn't say he was immoral. He had the life that everybody knew. He had the reputation that that life brought about. When Jesus was telling the parable of the sower, which is the farmer who planted seed on four types of soil, the person who is described as the good soil 
in Luke chapter 18, it says, As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And that's what Paul did. His conversion took his heart that although he was a criminal for giving his thumbs up to the crowd when they murdered Stephen, Paul had a zeal for righteousness. He just didn't realize what true righteousness was until he met Christ because he was wrapped up in this self-righteous religion. But when he heard the word, he held it fast in an honest and good heart. Now he was bearing fruit. In other words, bringing about positive results for the kingdom. And he was patient with his accusers. May we be patient with those people that hate us. Verse 17, Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. So when Paul is dispatched to Jerusalem by the Holy Spirit, he does it in a faithful Jewish way. And he refers to Israel as my nation. Even though he was born and raised outside of Israel, he was a Jew through and through. Verse 18, While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. Now remember Acts 21, 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So that's the Jews from Asia that he's talking about. Verse 19, They ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Where were the true witnesses? They are mysteriously absent. Isn't that interesting? Verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. So since these men were at the council where they tried me, let them tell you what fault they found in me. Remember, when the Roman tribune set Paul down before the Sanhedrin, they couldn't do anything except fight against each other. So they never validated anything. And Paul's like, I went to the council. They couldn't even do their job. Verse 21, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. When Paul threw in the resurrection, that's when attention shifted from him to the two opposing Jewish orders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We remember that. Paul's entire argument at the council was a short one. He believed in the foretold resurrection of the dead and the Messiah who would be executed, not for himself, out of Daniel chapter 9. And he's once again using scripture to make his argument, and they cannot defeat the integrity of the scriptures. Verse 22, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So evidently Felix had some kind of knowledge about the way, the followers of Jesus. And he says, Okay, Paul, look, I'm going to wait until the tribune comes here. I want to talk to him before I proceed, so back to jail you go. Verse 23, Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. So keep Paul in custody, let his friends visit him until I find out the deal with this matter, and this would take two years. Felix was likely a very shrewd man, and probably senses Ananias got his feelings hurt when he was punked out by this rogue Pharisee. And since Ananias was just as corrupt as Felix was, it probably didn't bother Felix to prolong the case. I don't care. We know some things about Felix and Ananias. They were both messed up. Verse 24. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. When things simmer down, Felix wants to hear Paul preach. And his wife, who was Jewish, accompanied him. So they got witnessed to by the Apostle Paul. And you would think that Felix would come to know the Lord, change, all this kind of stuff. History doesn't give any indication that Felix was impacted by the gospel, but he heard. That means he's accountable. Verse 25, and when he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
Felix didn't expect the Holy Spirit to slap him, making him realize that he was all that God said not to be and that there's a coming judgment. It's funny when people who are in high and mighty positions hear about a pending judgment, they become so alarmed. I think it's because they're used to the system that gained them their prosperity. And in that system, whoever has the most when they die wins. But in God's kingdom, whoever is a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and obeys the word wins and wins really big. And those who aren't lose really big. So there's a really interesting thing that is apparently going to happen at the judgment. We're going to see people coming into glory who on earth really were nobodies. And to those who were somebody's powerful or whatever, you're going to see that all their power and everything had nothing unless they were a child of God. Verse 26, and at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. So, hey, Paul, why don't you post bail? Just give me the money and we'll call it good. So he wanted a bribe is what he wanted. But since you won't, why don't you tell me more about this Jesus that you believe in? Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So there's a change of guard, Felix checks out, and Festus enters in. And Festus appears to be a decent guy, whereas Felix was a typical corrupt ruler. But Paul's in prison, and Festus comes in, now it's his shot. Thank you.